you'd turn in your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16. <clears throat> Last week, in chapter 15, as David was fleeing from Absalom, his son, who was trying to take over the throne and doing a good job of that, God worked on David and his faith by encouraging him in three specific ways. We saw last week that God supported David's faith by sending him a gift, and that gift had a name. It was a man named Ittai. He was a Philistine commander, of all things, who was new on the scene, committed to the one king, the king of Israel, David. And he stayed with him and went with David as David left Jerusalem. Secondly, God freed David up, even in the midst of one of the most sorrowful and depressing scenes in Scripture, to plan for two of his priests, Zadok and Abiathar, to stay in Jerusalem and communicate what was really going on there back to David. Those men played a very important role, and so did their sons. This plan was hatched as David submitted himself to God's sovereignty, which is the point. Thirdly, God encouraged David with his providence. David heard that his number one advisor and counselor had betrayed him. His name was Ahithophel. And... So David prays that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel, who would now be counseling Absalom, he would turn it into foolishness. God answered David's prayer in his own way, however, certainly not as David expected. God sent Hushai to David, another advisor or counselor, who David wouldn't let come with him as he fled Jerusalem. He sent him back to Jerusalem to act like he is now loyal to Absalom. Notice that the second half of chapter 15 revolved around three primary people in encounters with David. Ittai, Abiathar, and Zadok, we'll count them as one, and Hushai. Now in chapter 16, we see just the opposite. Except for one glimpse of Hushai's encounter with Absalom back in Jerusalem in verses 16 through 19. First we see Ziba manipulating David in verse 1 through 4. And then we see Shimei cursing David in verse 5 through 14. And then we see Ahithophel betraying David with way too many details in verses 15 through 23. So really, we should take and look at this passage as connected to chapter 15. 
because they fit together in a very, very interesting way. So first let's look at Ziba's manipulation in verses 1 through 4. Remember him? Do you remember him? Back in chapter 9, David was looking for someone left in the house of Saul. This is when David assumed power. He was looking for someone left in the house of Saul whom he could show chesed to. Chesed, the kindness of God. God's steadfast love. And this was after he had consolidated his power and become the king of Israel. That's strange. We thought it was strange then, but it's God's ways. David was looking for somebody to bless who was still alive in the house of David. And Ziba, who was a servant of the house of Saul, was then brought to David to give him this information, hopefully, in chapter 9, verse 2. And Ziba told David that Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's crippled son, Jonathan, David's best friend, was still alive. So David made sure that Mephibosheth had all that had belonged to Saul. David also made sure that Ziba knew that he was now supposed to take care of all that Mephibosheth had. Now in chapter 16... Ziba approaches David as David was fleeing from Jerusalem. And Ziba was bringing a lot of provisions with him. Donkeys, bread, raisins, fruit, wine. Things that David and his loyal servants would need as they hit the trail fleeing from Absalom. David is astounded by this and asks Ziba why he had brought all these provisions. And then David asks where Mephibosheth is. And Ziba's answer we see in verse 3, the second half of verse 3. Ziba says, Behold, he, Mephibosheth, remains in Jerusalem. For he said, quote, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. What Ziba says here and what we learn from Mephibosheth's account later in chapter 19 is very different. So what's going on? We find out that Ziba lied. It's just that simple. He knew in this crisis situation that David had no opportunity to really check out his, soul, his story because he was getting away fast out of town. And he was looking like he was pro-David, Saiba was, coming with all these provisions, tangible evidence, see, that he cared. And David's thinking, how could Mephibosheth turn on me like that? Could he have really said that after all that David had done for him? So David makes a very hasty and ill-advised spur-of-the-moment decision. We read in this text that he transfers all that Mephibosheth had 
over to Ziba. A true friend then, Mephibosheth, is hurt. Ziba doesn't go on with David. We learn in chapter 19 that he and his men stay on their own land, which sounds suspicious. Ziba was moved then to do this, bring all these provisions and say, David, so long, we hope you do well. What moved him to do that? His loyalty to David? By no means. His own greed? Oh yes, that's what this is about. He is capitalizing on David's misfortune to increase his own fortune. Remember, he was supposed to take care of Mephibosheth, supply him, serve him. And what he really wanted was everything he could get. Ziba may have had a hunch that David would survive Absalom's conspiracy, so he showed David this support, bringing him all these provisions. He's playing both sides of the court. See that? If Absalom was successful, Ziba didn't go with David into exile. So if David got wiped out, he wasn't going to be there to be part of the slaughter. Ziba remained at home, ready to live and thrive under a new regime. One commentator coined a word for this. He calls it Zibaism. So if you want to say, call, or talk about somebody that you know is greedy and just trying to manipulate all the situation, you can either say they're acting like Ziba or say this is Zibaism, and I guarantee you nobody else will know what you're talking about. Secret code here. Zibaism can be subtle or it can be blatant, but either way it's ugly. The essence of Zibaism is to make an impression or an image and then profit from it. And before we get too worked up over the blatant kind of Ziba, Zibaism, the manipulation and lies that just kind of make you feel sick to your stomach when you see it, we, we've got to realize that this subtle forms of this are too often not even recognized, or when they are, we are very good at rationalizing them. What do I mean? Well, how often do we say something or do something so that someone else will notice us and esteem us and respect us and admire us and like us. In other words, we're, we do this if we are thinking, is there something in it for me? As Christ transforms our minds by the power of his word and the work of his spirit, isn't this kind of thing something that he is constantly rooting out of our hearts? Yes, it is. It's ugly no matter what kind of form it takes. The second person that sticks out in this chapter comes in sight here in verses 5 through 14. Would you please stand if you can, if you are able, as I read verses 5 through 14. 
When King David came to Bohem, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you men of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now? May this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now you see who this guy is? He's a descendant of Saul's family. He's a Benjaminite. And bitterness eventually erupts. That's what this is a picture of, is it not? And a lot of us think that we can be bitter and just hold it inside. Oh, no, you won't. It will come out at some point, somehow, somewhere. Here's a man who cursed continually, and he threw a bunch of rocks, and he assailed David as a bloodthirsty killer and jerk who was finally getting what he deserved. And he did this from the side of a hill, across from and above David's route. He was convinced that David was not innocent in the deaths of Abner, for example, Saul's army commander, and Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who had claimed the throne earlier in chapters 3 and 4. And in verse 9, Joab's brother. Abishai, we've seen him before, has had enough of this. And he blurts out and wants to do what probably most of us would want to do. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? In other words, this is a horrid situation. We are leaving with our tails between our legs. Absalom is assuming the throne. The rightful king is leaving in disgrace. Why should we have to put up with this? Let me just go over and take off this guy's head, which would have been easy. Abishai proposes this because he has observed 
that people without heads do not curse. My favorite commentator said that. Okay. David, though, will have none of Abishai's request. Again, we see made what seemed like a very strange rationale coming from David in verses 10 through 12. We need to understand this, and we're going to try, because it may not be as simple as it looks. Why doesn't David decide to silence this pest? Well, look at verse 10. In verse 10, David basically says that the Lord may have prompted this outburst from this bitter, disgruntled man. While all this was uncalled for, what did David know? David knew that he was guilty of Uriah's murder, Bathsheba's husband, and so much more. He was a broken man now, David. He was penitent. He was not vindictive. And in verse 11, David says that if his own son wants him dead, then how much more would a man in Saul's family want him dead? Then in verse 12, David looks to the Lord for his ultimate relief and comfort. And he voices this so that all the people with him could hear it. This is not a little whisper to one guy. He says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. But there's a problem. This text is not this clear. That's an easy way to understand what is saying. But let me go through this. So hang in there. There is a textual problem here that affects how you and I understand what it is that David desires the Lord to look on. Look at that verse. It may be that the Lord will look on. And the question is, what does he mean by look on? Most English translations, check yours, render this verse close to what the English Standard Version does, which I read. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong wrong done to me. New American Standard, King James, New King James, that the Lord look on my affliction. The NIV says, the Lord look on my distress. And there are several other ways. But all those are very similar in their meaning. A few Hebrew texts render this, look upon my eye or my eyes. Construed by most, then, as upon my tears, because the eyes are the source of the tears, is how they would understand that. But there's one more possibility. The other possibility is that the Lord will look upon my iniquity. 
One Hebrew word is translated as wrong, affliction, or distress. Another slightly different, and we mean slightly different, Hebrew word is translated as I or eyes. And another slightly different Hebrew word is translated as iniquity. All three Hebrew words are almost exactly alike. But what we want to do is try to see what the difference is and see if it makes any difference what the difference is. I think it does. David is either desiring the Lord to look on the wrong done to him here, wrong done to him, in other words, David's affliction and distress, or David is desiring the Lord to look on his own iniquity. That's a big difference, don't you think? In other words, David's going out, he's getting cursed upon, there's rocks thrown, dirt thrown on him. And he's saying, well, the Lord will look on my distress now, having to leave and not be the king, and maybe something will happen. That's really different than the Lord's looking on my iniquity And he'll repay me for good, with good. See that? That's a big difference. So how could there be this difference? Well, the Hebrew words are so similar that the scribes could have made a mistake, which happened not that much, but every once in a while. Or when copying their originals, etc., they may have thought there was a previous small mistake and opted for the Hebrew word for wrong or affliction, or distress, because it immediately makes sense. David was getting abused by this guy, and he says that the Lord may repay him, David, with good because of all the abuse. And that's the way we usually read it, and probably the way you've read it ever since you were this high, if you've ever read that, probably multiple times. But if David is asking the Lord to repay him with good, as the Lord looks on David in his own iniquity, how are we to understand that? Doesn't that sound strange? That God would look on David's iniquity and return good to him anyway, instead of the cursing. Some of you know where this is going, I can tell. If this is what David is saying, then David is displaying a deep-seated confidence in a God who loves to surprise us with his grace. A God who has this tendency to replace cursing with goodness. He knows that God could do this if he knew it would be best. Though God has declared his punishment, the eye of God may long to spare him from some or all of it. Because he's going through the cursing no matter what happens here. He already has. He's leaving. His family is torn to shreds. And it's not over yet. Notice that David is not sure that God would do this. Did you see that? It may be. But he wouldn't have said this 
Well, it may be that unless he had already, get this, unless he had already laid hold upon this characteristic of the God that he already knew. David does not demand that God replace the cursing with good, but he knows God well enough to know that even God's punishment, this is hard to, under, this is hard to swallow, but this is so important. He knows God well enough to know that even God's punishment is full of God's desiring good for him. If you're having trouble with that and you're a parent, you should get it. I still remember my father coming in and he would start off backwards. I don't want to do this, Rob. And then, but I was glad because his punishment was about a tenth of my mom's. Some of you understand that too. But he would always start with that. I could tell it was the hardest thing that he had, he could ever imagine doing. But isn't this the glory of the gospel? That we deserve hell, but God in and through Christ, gives us eternal life. And David does understand to a great degree, oh, to a great degree, the depravity of his own heart. He gets it, especially since the bad fruit is now born invisible. And he knows what he deserves. But even in his punishment, the consequences of his own sin, he is reaching beyond the circumstances which are hard to the God that he knows. In other words, you and I, we just can't imagine how deep and warm and longing God's compassion is for us, even when he disciplines us for our sin. And David is trying to imagine that here, because he knows his God. Do you think because of your sin... That God only regards you with a kind of grudging toleration? And sometimes you may think he doesn't even tolerate you. I think most of us still think that way. Even if you've been a Christian for decades you still think that way first. That God just kind of grudgingly tolerates you because you still sin. Well, guess what? The message that comes out, this reading is correct. 
which is, I think, a lot deeper than the superficial way it comes across in English. The first way is that you're not doomed. Do you know the God that David knows here? Can you reach through the hard punishment phases, knowing that you're going through this, to know the God, and you know that he is still going to encourage you, and there'll be some good through it all somehow, maybe, if he knows it's the best? Can you trust that God? See what we're getting at here? This is deep, deep grace we're talking. Shimei is the man who curses, but David tells us that the Lord is the God who may reverse the curse. In fact, Paul says it this way on a little different subject in Galatians 3. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do we know that God? In our day-to-day experience, think about this. This is an example in the Old Testament of God's incredible grace that David knows, even though he's in the middle of going through the consequences of his own sin, as he leaves with his son taking the throne from him, And the only people that are really with him are a bunch of Philistines and other foreign mercenaries. And he tells his whole crowd this, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So, Bishai, you're not doing anything to Shimei up there on that hill. I deserve it. But I also know my God, and we're not going to retaliate here. This is an amazing text. But we're not through yet. And I am not going to read the rest of this chapter out loud. But you can fill in the blanks. All right? Ahithophel is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. He was the most trusted advisor of David, and this guy was sharp. He understood people. He understood situations. He knew how to get what the king wanted and make him come out on top. David is not just anybody. He's Yahweh's chosen king. So to rebel against David as king is to rebel against God Almighty and his kingdom. David must not be viewed as an individual only, but especially here in terms of his office. He is the reigning king. Absalom's coup then was not the only option available for an advocate of change in a society that didn't have democratic elections. It was rebellion against God's anointed servant. We've got to get that straight here. This is not to deny David's sinfulness either or the judgment that he now suffers, even the judgment that's coming through Absalom. David is both under Yahweh's 
election and under Yahweh, Lord God, judgment, and yet remains God's appointed servant. So to despise, oppose, and betray David is to despise, oppose, and betray the God who appointed him. Now, right after we read the introduction about Ahithophel in verse 15, we see Hushai coming back in for a brief, hey, don't forget me, God's working kind of thing, in verses 16 through 19. Basically, Hushai is now in Jerusalem. Remember, he's the counselor that wanted to go with David, and David said, no, go back. You're going to be the guy that counters the counsel of Ahithophel. So he initiates contact with Absalom and declares his loyalty for service to Absalom. So David now has his own loyal friend embedded in Absalom's court. And we'll see how Hushai actually saves David in chapter 17. God's providence. So back to Ahithophel in verse 20. Absalom asked for counsel. And boy, did Ahithophel give it. You want to have some discussions over lunch? No, lunch would not be a good place. The same prince who was full of holy indignation at his brother Amnon's sexual violence now is told and does perpetrate a sexual crime against his father that is even hard to imagine for us in our depraved culture. This was a watershed event that the whole nation was supposed to see. And it was a picture of the possession of the king's harem, which was really a title to the throne and then for Absalom made this a matter of show and tell in a tent on the roof in the sight of all. So by all these abominable acts, he's telling all Israel that the bridges are now burned, there's no hope of reconciling with his father, and he is his own man and he's now the king. And he could have of setting it more louder if there was rockets available at that point. Shuts such decisiveness, if you want to call it that, as Ahithophel knows would galvanize Absalom's kingdom. There's no going back. Galvanize his supporters. In other words, the king is gone. He's been actually shamed in such a way uh, David has Absalom's the man. And yet there's something going on, else going on here. Let me read chapter 12, verse 10 and 12 again, in case you've forgotten. Listen carefully. This is the Lord's, through Nathan, telling David what's coming. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Oh, my goodness. Ahithophel's advice that is meant to overthrow David's kingdom nevertheless carries out the Lord's judgment upon David's son, Absalom. Ahithophel's scheme to remove the Lord's chosen king does, in fact, fulfill the Lord's previous word that I just read. That's why there is, no, there is hope for God's people in this text, even though it depicts a judgment upon the covenant king. For the text here and the one I read in chapter 12, God's word to David, is saying that the betrayer, who? Absalom, is still in the hand of God. He's not getting away with anything. He has to deal with God. You see that? Ahithophel's act of treachery carried out by Absalom only executes the Lord's word. The New Testament counterpart is Judas's betrayal. Judas's scheme only carries out God's design. That's what we're getting to. Do you realize that? Judas's sinful betrayal was what God used to carry out his design to send Jesus to the cross to die for us. Yeah, this is like theology PhD right here. Because we'll never fully understand this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was what? Betrayed. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us betrayed and gave him up are the same Greek word. So you could say what it means is really hand over. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was handed over he did not he who did not spare his own son but handed him over for us. Does that help? It helped me. On the one hand, Judas wickedly hands over the son of God, but actually God hands over his son. And mysteriously Judas's scheme only carries out God's design. When God's people are in the presence of our enemies, this truth should comfort us. Why? Because it looks like evil has gone crazy. And there's no hope. But we have 
several examples in Scripture, Christ Jesus being the main one, that when it looks like hell has won, God can use even that to accomplish his redemptive purpose for his people. question is whether you believe it. Well, to help you, we just happen to have communion today, which is the picture of how God sent his own son to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Evil men wanted him to die. God knew since forever, that this was how he was going to save the people that he chose for himself. By having his son die in our stead to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could stand before God clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Nobody but God could have dreamed this one up. And I don't mean that derogatorily. God's plan is so beyond us. First our need, and then how only he can meet it. And that's what the communion table is designed to show us. But where did we see it today, pictured, pointed to? May it be that God could look upon my iniquity and still show me good? Is that what you're saying right now? See, David knew this. He knew it. He wrote about it. That's why the Psalms are so precious to us as believers.